You're listening to the audio version of the Frontline documentary America's Great Divide, From Obama to Trump. Here is episode three. Tonight on Nightline, license to kill? It's the shooting death that sparked an explosion of outrage. Good evening, I'm Terry Moran. It's the story that's ignited fierce passions across the nation as allegations of racism and miscarriage of justice tear apart a small Florida town. For Obama, once again, the issue of race. Trayvon Martin was walking back from a convenience store when he was allegedly shot by a neighbor. Police have the gun, they've got the shooter, but they have not arrested him. The dead man's grieving family wants to know why not. PBS NewsHour reporter Yamiche Alcindor. President Obama, as the first African-American president, had been very careful not to talk too much about race. It was frustrating some African-Americans. Then Trayvon Martin is killed in Florida and the country gas, the country is, is, is really on edge. Wesley Lowry, Washington Post. Here's a teenager walking through the neighborhood where his father lives, committing no crime, bothering no one, who is followed, confronted, and ends up in a physical altercation with a stranger uh, where he ends up killed. And then the person who killed him is allowed to go home that day. New Yorker writer Jelani Cobb. The contradiction of this happening in the midst of a black presidency sharpened the irony and intensified the pain I think people felt around this. African Americans who had turned out in record numbers for him, who in some ways Obama owed his presidency to, felt as though he wasn't saying enough about race. Author Michael Eric Dyson. People were pushing him, say something. Are you gonna say anything? You're a black man, a young black boy has been murdered by a guy who's a hyped up, you know, neighborhood watchman. Black America is traumatized by this. Silence from the White House. Nothing, no leadership, no, no insight. Finally, Good morning, everybody. nearly a month after the killing, the president was publicly confronted about it. Can you comment on the Trayvon Martin case? My main message is, is uh, to the parents of uh, Trayvon Martin. Um, you know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. And, um, you know, I think they are right to expect that all of us as Americans uh, are going to take this with the seriousness it deserves and that we're going to get to the bottom of exactly what happened. Wesley Lowry. It showed and it underscored the complications and the difficulties of the first black president weighing in on issues of race. That by his very presence, by his very willingness to discuss, he himself was bringing the partisan guns to the fight. And suddenly an innocuous statement became deeply inflammatory to half of the country. The president had a son, he wouldn't look anything like Trayvon Martin. He'd be uh, wearing a blazer from his prep school. Uh, he'd be driving a Beamer. We have a president who has, who has frozen racial tension in our country instead of thawing racial tension. It blew up on Fox. The president's goal is to hype an African-American turnout by stoking a feeling of victimization in the African-American community. And it took off on an increasingly powerful new platform, Breitbart. We were the blog kind of for the Tea Party. 
Former Breitbart chairman Steve Bannon. This Tea Party energy, you know, right after the financial collapse, we caught on with this kind of working class, middle class audience. They were the voice of the populist outrage Sarah Palin had activated, running stories that stoked fear and division, black-on-black -black crime, Islamic terrorism, violence by immigrants, a culture under assault. Hispanic and black thugs tend to attack Asians because Blacks they are, are incapable for being responsible for themselves. Breitbart's comment sections became notorious gathering places for extreme viewpoints. The towel heads are taking over because we let them. Gayness is a I mean, it reads like you've walked into a hate club gathering of some kind. Former Breitbart spokesman Kurt Bardala. How stupid are women? Let's find out. They were appealing to the segment of the population that are racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, really the, the worst among us, creating this congregating space every day where people from that worldview can, can go and, and, and rally around one another to find content that validates their worldview. And, and I think that's what they were building, ultimately. Wesley Lowry. I think that there was a failure to appreciate the extent to which these online communities were forming and these online ecosystems were formed. That if you were someone who spent all day in your car listening to Rush Limbaugh and got home and watched Glenn Beck at night and then opened your Facebook page and saw a bunch of Breitbart links, it didn't really matter to you that New York Times or the Washington Post had said the birtherism wasn't true. It didn't matter how many Pinocchios the fact check had gotten of Donald Trump's latest talk show appearance. There's a story on Breitbart. Republican National Committee declares war. This was provided to me by Breitbart. Breitbart breaking more stories in the past few years than most journalists who like to dust off their awards on their shelves. They're going to keep the race business alive, and it's going to prosper during the Obama administration because that causes more chaos. They want to stir up racial hatred in the country. And you know what? I'm not afraid to talk about race. Let's talk about it. Let's see. President Obama is battling for his own second term. It is in such difficult shape right President now. President Obama's approval ratings have hit an all-time low. President Obama out on the campaign trail today, then we saw... Uh, By the time he was running for re-election in 2012... A difficult road ahead for the president. The divisiveness was rampant. He had dramatically dropped in the polls. President Obama faces an uphill battle. He was fighting to keep his job. There was a much different President Obama out on the campaign trail today. Former Obama strategist David Axelrod. We were in bad shape politically. Nate Silver wrote a piece on the cover of the New York Times magazine, and the headline was, Is Obama Toast? A very different Barack Obama headed out to do battle with the Republicans. It was not a campaign about unity. We knew that we had to run a very hard-edged re-election campaign that posited the president as someone who was battling for the middle class. If I said the sky was blue, they said no. If I said there were fish in the sea, they said no. They figured if Obama fails, then we win. Dan Balls, Washington Post. President Obama decided we're going to have an argument in 2012. We're going to win that argument if we can. And if we win it, we are then going to do what we want to do or, or push in the directions we want to push. Because of their policies, the Republicans messed up so bad. 
author Peter Baker. He's a more scarred president who has become himself frustrated by the way Washington works, no longer quite so believing in the idea that bipartisanship is possible. It was a different message than it was in 2008. It was not a come together message. It was not a hope and change message. It was a stop the other guys message. It's the same agenda that they have been pushing for years. As Obama attacked, Republicans were also at war with themselves. The establishment had gotten behind one of their own, wealthy businessman Mitt Romney. Barack Obama has failed America. This country we love is in peril. The Tea Party saw him as out of touch. He verges on hysterical. Mitt Romney has never done a single thing to favor the conservative cause. I swear, every time Mitt Romney opens his mouth, I have no clue. I think he's running against me. Former Tea Party Congressman Raul Labrador. I don't think that Romney was somebody who understood the angst of the American people. He didn't understand what, what especially the Republicans in throughout the United States were feeling, how, how disaffected they felt. What does Mitt Romney believe? And is he truly a conservative? Not exactly a person of conviction, not even... Romney needed the Tea Party and its populist base. Trying to win them over, he went to Las Vegas for an endorsement from the man who put the birther movement on the map. Dan Balls. Mitt Romney looks completely uncomfortable. Donald Trump is totally in his element. It's in a curious way. It's Donald Trump's event, not Mitt Romney's event. He, you know, he, he commands the stage. It's my honor, real honor, and privilege to endorse Mitt Romney. Mark Leibovich, New York Times Magazine. It was literally one of the most bizarre political scenes I'd ever By seen. Way, this is a great couple. You know, Mitt and Ann Romney were standing up there, and I kept looking at Ann Romney, who looked like she was using every single bit of energy she had not to start cracking up uncontrollably. At that moment, it seemed like, you know, not unlike Sarah Palin four years earlier, kind of a comic diversion, something that was different. So, Governor Romney, go out and get him. You can do it. It was hilarious. It was bizarre. In retrospect, I guess it represented some kind of passing of the torch. There are some things that you just can't imagine happening in your life. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, <laughs> being in uh, Donald Trump's magnificent hotel and having his endorsement is a, a delight. I'm, I'm so honored. And, uh, it was tacit endorsement in the other direction of Mitt Romney to the kind of rhetoric that Donald Trump was vociferous in trafficking in around Obama's birth certificate. The, the perpetrator of a blatantly nativist campaign against the president of the United States. But on election night at Romney headquarters in Boston, there was no victory party. Romney was the worst candidate. Yeah, his club. Today I'm pissed off, and you should be too. We're not gonna Establishment Republicans were reeling. Especially when you look at the turnout. And one particular Republican was making plans for the future. There's serious soul searching going to happen in the Republican Party. And the author and journalist Michael Kranich. Donald Trump went to Boston, in fact, to be at the victory party that never occurred. He got in his plane, turned around, went back to New York City, and he started tweeting. This election is a total sham and a travesty. We are not a democracy. We can't let this happen. We should march on Washington and stop this travesty. Our nation is totally divided. We should have a revolution in this country. 
He lost the popular vote. It was an opening salvo in a campaign to capture the conservative base. And just six days later, Trump signed this trademark application for the phrase, make America great again. Former Trump advisor, Roger Stone. Right after Romney lost, we had a brief chat. Can Hillary be beat? Who else is gonna run? He's already handicapping. Romney's body isn't even cold yet, and he's already handicapping this election. It was clear to me then he was going to run. President of the United States has been re-elected. Barack Obama wins. Defeating a Mitt Romney following an often nasty and costly... Obama's coalition had prevailed. Another four years for President Barack Obama. Now he would test whether the election had consequences. Former Obama advisor Ben Rhodes. Obama gets re-elected you know, rather decisively. Um, and, you know, he was hopeful that this fever would break. He kept saying, like, hopefully this breaks the fever. To win, Obama had energized Latino voters. Republican leaders had taken note. Now, the president hoped they might be willing to work with him on immigration reform. Former Obama advisor Cecilia Munoz. Everybody understood that there was an opening, a political opening, because Republicans were ready to come to the conversation. And so the president's marching orders to his team were very clear. This is a priority. I want to get it done. The Republicans did a sobering study of where things stood. GOP pollster Frank Luntz. And they realized after 2012 that America's changing. And that if you wanted to win the White House, not just Congress, you had to appeal to younger voters, Latinos, and women. We must embrace and champion comprehensive immigration reform. If we do not, our party's appeal will continue to shrink. GOP power brokers like Majority Leader Eric Cantor laid out the party's problem. Too many uh, millennials, minorities, and others have rejected um, um, us at the polls because they sense that somehow we're not inclusive. And unless we show the American people that conservative principles actually help them in a real and not just theory, we'll never get the majority confidence back. A bipartisan group of senators unveiled a plan now, that Republicans and Democrats set to announce a major compromise surrounding immigration. Republican Senator Marco Rubio was the face of bipartisan immigration reform. For me, immigration is not a new issue. It is a politically new issue. But in my life, I know it firsthand. The political class was sure that immigration reform was going to be like falling off a log. My parents are immigrants. My grandparents were immigrants. My wife's family are immigrants. I live surrounded by immigrants. Even on Fox News, support for the softer immigration approach. Former conservative radio host Charlie Sykes. And even people like Sean Hannity went on the air and said, we need to rethink our position on immigration. I was wrong to take such a hard line on, on immigration. You create a pathway for those people that are here, you don't say you gotta go home. And that is in a, in a position that I've evolved on. Sean Hannity invited Obama's nemesis and Fox regular onto his show. And even he seemed to favor immigration reform. I think it's getting very tough to win as a Republican. Look, they've lost on immigration. They're going to have to do something on immigration because, you know, our country is a different place than it was 50 years ago. And so we'll see what happens. Mr. Trump, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Obama's wish in the aftermath of his re-election that the fever would break seemed like it might come true. But there was a new wrinkle. 
Ben Rhodes. What was interesting is the fever broke among certain Republican elites, right? The problem is that's not where the Republican voters were or the majority of the Republican House caucus. At Breitbart, the chairman, Steve Bannon, was sowing division, rallying the populist base against the Republican establishment. I said, let's attack the real enemy, and the real enemy is the Republican establishment. What we're gonna do is just go after the House leadership, we're gonna go after the Mitch McConnell's, we're gonna go after the donors. We're just gonna go hard at kind of this Paul Ryan philosophy. Bannon and Breitbart weaponized immigration against the establishment. Editor Alex Marlowe. We spent a lot more time talking to the public than we spent talking to the elite. The issue lit up Breitbart's already incendiary message boards. Illegals kill 12 plus people a day in this country. Murderous rapists. This president calls them dreamers. Deport all of the illegal aliens. It is potentially the threat of an open border is pretty catastrophic. Immigration to Republican voters by a mile. It's the number one issue, even ahead of tax cuts. Wesley Lowry, Washington Post. This was some of the brilliance of Bannon. He recognized an anxiety that had been building in the heartland for years. The country itself felt like it was changing. And are these people here legally? Did they skip a step in line? Did they follow all the rules? Again, the, the economy for so many Americans has still been so frustrating. So all of this is happening while people have real questions about their own security. Bannon decided it was time for a show of force use immigration to take down a central figure in the Republican establishment. Author and journalist Joshua Green. And when they looked around, the guy that they thought was most vulnerable was Eric Cantor, the House Majority Leader. Cantor was up for re-election. Tea Party challenger Dave Bratt was more than 30 points behind in the primary. Steve Bannon. I, you definitely knew what's coming. I, it, 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 that was also having to be my home district, but I could feel it. I knew that that a guy like Brad could, they were very weak. Cantor, can you believe this guy? Can you believe Ryan? Breitbart amnesty. swung behind Brad. Eric Cantor, he's all in for amnesty. They set the agenda for right-wing radio. You're a coward, Eric Cantor. You only Eric Cantor who wants amnesty. Paul Ryan, who I call the phone. Former Trump advisor Sam Nunberg. Anything that became talking points on conservative radio were coming from Breitbart. And you had a transformation where conservative radio hosts weren't clicking on Drudge Report on what to say. They were clicking on Breitbart. It worked. History-making upset. House Majority Leader Eric Cantor lost. This was a seismic shift that took all of the establishment figures Cantor's by defeat surprise. sent a message to Republicans. A new Republican Party with fresh Bipartisan immigration reform was House dead. Majority Leader Eric Cantor's defeat is the end of immigration reform. Former Democratic Congressman Luis Gutierrez. I knew that night when I heard, I was talking to my Republican. They were basically, there's no reason for us to talk anymore. This is not going anywhere. Former Tea Party Congressman Tim Hillscamp. You can almost feel the Capitol shake. I've never seen so many people crying with long faces, uh, all upset on Capitol Hill. I mean, that's, I think, the worst drubbing the establishment has had in, in many years. Author Ann Coulter. It was the elected Republicans and talk radio realizing that the people who vote for them and watch their media hated their guts, absolutely hated their guts. It was clear that the voter base was throwing out the Republican establishment's ideas on immigration. 
that's what that represented. And it was stunning. It was one of the biggest upsets in the history of American politics. President Obama's advisors understood what it meant. Ben Rhodes. The second that Eric Cantor is defeated in that primary was the death knell of immigration reform and also was a signal that the Republican Party was no longer just kind of talking publicly about Obamacare and spending and a little quietly to their base about immigration. This was going to become what the party was about, uh, which is racially or ethnically fueled grievances with immigration at the center. The divide was widening. But outside of Washington, in Newtown, Connecticut, in one tragic event, shared national grief. Former Obama advisor Valerie Jarrett. Newtown was the worst moment of the presidency. It was unfathomable to imagine 20 children, six and seven-year-old first graders being gunned down in that violent and destructive way, and then six adults who were trying to help. I remember seeing Obama several times that day, and he was like, a, I've never seen him as much of an emotional wreck. I got an email from the president saying, uh, this is the first time that I cried in the Oval Office. I mean, he was just bursting into tears throughout the day. He always told me that if something happened to one of his kids, he didn't think he could get out of bed. And here all these beautiful young kids were, uh, were slaughtered, and he was, he was sad, and he was irate. And he kept saying, like, All I, I, I don't think I can talk about this publicly. Because the second I start talking about those kids, I'm just going to be thinking about my kids. The majority of those who died today were children. Uh, beautiful little kids between the ages of five and 10 years old. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Birthdays, graduations, weddings, kids of their own. As a country, we have been through this too many times. May God bless the memory of the victims. And in the words of Spritzer, heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. For Obama, Newtown was a test. Whether a tragedy could bring the country together around another contentious issue, 
gun control. Author and journalist Peter Baker. He was so moved by what happened in Newtown, and he thought the country was as well, that this would be a chance to do something that Democrats would have loved to have done before, but never thought was possible. The president wanted gun legislation. But by now, he had become so polarizing, he told Vice President Joe Biden to take the lead. It was in a context of uh, sorrow, uh, extreme, uh, I mean, anger and frustration about why can't we do something about this? It was like enough is enough is enough. Put together something for me, Joe. Biden turned to Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and Republican Senator Pat Toomey to draft it. Norman Ornstein, American Enterprise Institute. We have what looks to be a model of bipartisan action, and they propose a modest change in the gun laws, but one that would begin at least to turn an issue that had gone entirely in one direction in a somewhat different direction. Public support was strong. Republicans were signing on. Amy Shalcindor, PBS NewsHour. Everyone felt like the world was going to change. Everyone felt like this is going to be the mass shooting that makes America really look at its gun laws and change something. I was optimistic. Over 91% of the American people supported expanding background checks. 80% of the households that had an NRA member supported it. I've had enough all these people. Then, the blowback. Breitbart. Talk radio. Try to hide their agendas behind women and children, and most of all, They apparently don't believe liberty's on the line. They apparently don't believe the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are on the line. Fox News. It's about the ideology. It's about stripping law-abiding American citizens from their, their legal right to have a gun. And they're very eager to use whatever tragedy they can to advance their cause. Their gun, gun laws are going to hurt the, the defense of the innocent. It's got inside job written all over it. And on the fringes, outrageous conspiracy theories denying the shooting had actually happened. Alex Jones. Sandy Hook is a synthetic, completely fake, with actors, in my view, manufactured. I have no faith in these people, none. You would think now, if ever, that a so-called conservative Republican in the Senate would have learned the lesson that this president cannot be relied on to follow the law. One by one, Obama watched key Republicans and even some Democrats back away from the bill. Cutting deals over what? Over the Second Amendment? I despise these people. And the older I get, the more I despise Author Charlie Sykes. Here was a moment where 80, 90% of Americans, I think, would have supported some sort of a reasonable compromise about it, and yet nothing happened. So this is where you have the Republican Party held hostage by its base and American politics held hostage by that Republican Party. Mr. Inhofe, Mr. Isaacson, Mr. Lautenberg, Mr. Leahy, Mr. Lee, Mr. Wyden. The amendment is not agreed to. The bill fell five votes short. 
How could they vote that way? Don't they understand what happened? How can they do that? How can this be? I mean, it was disbelief and a sense of betrayal. That was the mode. Dan Balls, Washington Post. It was an emotional setback for the president. It was a huge political setback for the president. And in some ways helped to set the tone again for what was going to come after in other areas. Obama invited the Newtown families to the White House. Mark Barton. Daniel was a first grader at Sandy Hook Elementary School. I know that he felt he felt a sense of responsibility to us and, and, in, and to the nation and to that 90% of the country that, that wanted this. You know, I think he felt a, a strong sense of responsibility toward that and his, his uh, disgust was palpable. It came down to politics. The worry that that vocal minority of gun owners would come after them in future elections. So all in all, this was a pretty shameful day for Washington. Thank you very much, everybody. Former GOP advisor, Steve Schmidt. Great presidents have been able to forge compromise. President Obama was not able to do that. And the reason may well be the implacability of the people sitting on the other side of the table from him. Sometimes you can't get to yes with someone who won't say anything other than no. You're supposed to believe that if only these background checks were in place, all you know, Newtown would have happened, none of this would have happened. There wasn't one part of this bill that would have stopped what happened at that school. Won't you just turn your guns in for my son? Why'd you do it to him, gun owners? Well, listen, I didn't kill your kids. 